to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're out for a stroll next to a lake or you're ironing your clothes. I hope it's a lot nicer where you are than it is where I am. Um, but anyway, whatever you're doing, thank you so, so much for dedicating the next half hour of your one precious life to listen to this episode. And I do not think you're going to regret it. So today's guest is the wonderfully warm authentic uh, Sasha Romanovich. So I met her when she was the CEO of Grant Thornton before she moved on to head up an organization, a not-for-profit organization called Fair for All Finance, which is amazing and super important and especially right now. And I'm sure she'll tell you all about that uh, when we talk. So I met Sasha a few years ago and she really stuck in my mind because of her warmth and her vision and her energy and the way that our visions align. So I'm really, really, really delighted that she's agreed to join us today. But before I introduce you to Sasha, I really want to say a massive and a very genuine thank you to all of you that have sent feedback and suggestions and who've reached out. Um, and actually I've met three new amazing leaders over the last couple of weeks from all over the world, purely because they've been listening to this podcast and it's changing the way that they see their job, which is incredible. It's like my job here is done when I get that kind of feedback. It's super important to me. So please just email me cats at wearebeep.com. Obviously, if you want to know more about the CREATE framework, which we talk about a lot in this podcast, go over to catskeely.com and you'll find out more about what that framework is and how we use it. And if you want to find more about our leadership programs and our cultural and operational transformation programs, go to wearebeep.com. But now, let me introduce you to the phenomenal Sasha Romanovich. Sasha Romanovich, I am so, so, so delighted, really delighted to have you on a guest, as a guest in this uh, episode of Humans Needing Humans. Listeners, um, why have I invited Sasha? So I met Sasha some time ago, and uh, we'll discuss in a second where we met, but I have never forgotten her since. I remember she made such a huge, profound impact on me because she was so everything that I really value about being women, actually. So powerful, so courageous, and so empathetic. And she's probably cringing here. <laughs> but it's true, and I do tell your stories, and therefore I've invited you to tell them yourself, because I know that the way you tell them is going to be much better. So, Sasha, where did we actually meet? 
And I was trying to remember this, Kat, and I think it was probably at one of our, one of the dinners we hosted to bring together interesting people who were thinking about the world differently, to think about how we could actually transform business and think about how we participate in the economy. So I think it was at one of those that we were just like, firing off each other and um and then you've been very patient with me over the years as we've sort of had sporadic oh check-in moments so yeah <laughs> right back then <laughs> and i am fully appreciative that right now um you're quite busy so i know that this time together is worth a lot and so i fully appreciate it so um sasha i sent you the create framework what did that make you think what did it make you feel it was it was really great. It's, it's it's lovely to see because I think it aligns very much with how I sort of think about culture and almost like the operating system of how the world needs to work if we're going to tackle the many challenges the world faces for everybody to actually get through it and thrive. I think I was talking to you that what struck me during my time as leadership is that the world so much still operates on an operating model that was created by rich white privileged men in the sort of the 1860s and you know all of our laws and systems everything in terms of how business operates in that sort of early stage of industrialization there was a concept of public interest but you have to step back and say well who is the public at that time well actually the public they were interested in was actually the landowning at that time it was men and in the uk it was largely white men that was who was designing this system to protect their assets that was the public interest and so the whole operating system being designed around this idea of a hierarchy there are a few people at the top who did all the thinking told everyone else what to do this idea of competition which was forged on the public schools on the time you know i'm going to fight you and if i get it then i've won and then also this idea of singular purpose of profit. You know, I want to accrue assets and property to myself. And you see that played out in so many of our systems. You know, we were talking, you know, even down to schools, you know, it's like, you know, kids are sitting next to each other. It's like, well, don't copy, um, you know, because you're in competition with each other. It's, it's bred into everything that we do. And so, you know, I, I, I sort of often talk about, you know, well, the, what's the operating system sort of 2.0 that we're trying to create? And it's very similar to your create framework, which is, you know, actually, you know, the, the, we're, we're wanting to actually create a world in which everybody can thrive, that we're sort of operating in pursuit of actually an overall purpose, not just profit. So beyond the binary that actually to solve the challenges the world faces, it's got to be collaboration, not just competition, because actually we've all got different things. We've all got different perspectives. If we bring that together and share, that's actually what makes a difference. And also this sort of idea of instead of um, the hierarchy, you've got community, because actually everyone can see a different map of the world and it's only together that we get a full understanding of the territory. It can make better decisions. So, you know, your, your framework, I think, encapsulates that very well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think the reason I pulled it together was for all of the reasons you just said that actually we've got, we're still working in these incredibly mechanistic, rational, mm -hmm. is it left brain or right brain? Right brain? Left brain. Yeah, left, left brain, brain ways. Yeah. And actually the operating models that most organizations still run on across, you know, political, um, public and private organizations 
all of the conditions are diametrically opposed to the things that help humans to thrive. And yeah. that's when we first connected of just going, yeah, 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 we need to change this. Yeah. So Sasha, yeah. what's your story number one? <laughs> so my, my story number one is one that perhaps people can relate to. Um, it's it's going back many years now, but um, it was when I was manager in an accounting firm and I'd been sort of building sort of the portfolio of clients that I was working on and more and more work kept coming in. And I was just trying to work. I was in that phase where I, I, I think I genuinely believed that if I just worked that bitch more, much harder, then I'd be able to get on top of it and it would all be fine. But of course, what I was doing was just working myself into the ground. And I remember there being this moment. I remember I was sitting in my corner desk in the office and it was dark outside and I was sort of sitting this mountain of work to do. And one of the partners came over and sort of said, oh, can you do this as well? And I just burst into tears. I was like, um, that was it. I, it was like the straw that broke camel's back. I had nothing more to give. And um, I think he went away as sort of a bit awkward of like, oh, God, I've made a cry, you know, run away as fast as I can. Um, and then, you know, it was really from that, that I had to sort of have a bit of a, well, I've tried this working harder. There was no more juice in the engine. There was nothing more to give. And the next day talking to somebody and them saying, yeah, but we don't expect you to be superwoman but you need to set your boundaries of what is possible. And that was a really good lesson because so many times, you know, I see it all the time. People sort of going, you know, well, my workload's too much. I'm working too many hours. And it's like, well, who's in control of that, right? And so that realizing, oh, I'm in control of my life and I can set the boundaries. And and I've carried that through to this day that now I'm I'm sure I drive my team team nuts. You know, I set out specific focus time in my diary, blocks of three or four hours. I have three of them a week and nothing goes in there unless I say so. There are other slots everyone can book what they want to do. But I protect that time because that's how I make sure that I can actually do my work without sort of working all the hours God sends and getting into that place of falling over again. And actually, we, we both know that when you do that, even though you feel like you're somehow opting out, you're much, much more efficient, productive. And I think about, you know, those times when you're working with corporations and somebody else is controlling your diary and you're watching every half hour getting taken away from you. It's the ultimate opposite of empowerment, of autonomy or of respect. It's like, no, because you know what? My time is the most important thing to me. And as you were talking, I was thinking that I, I especially find this with women, women leaders. And I have to say that I find myself doing this. I feel like I should be superwoman. And we can't. It's like, yeah. and, and you know, they're making me do all this stuff. Well, why are you pushing back and telling them that I can't physically do all this stuff well? Yeah. And you need to bring some people in or hand stuff off. Why? Anyway, thank you so yeah. much. I think, but I've got, I've got two ones. I'll add on that. I know I'm not. I'm going to mess up your stories, but I love it. Two, <laughs> two bits that were really helpful for me in terms of stories. One was an amazing guy called Laurie Young, who's now departed. Him sitting down with me and saying. Your problem, Sasha, is you've got to kill puppies. Now, that sounds awful, isn't it? Kill puppies. What's that all about? And he said, you've got really good at saying no to things you don't want to do, 
But when things look at you with those big brown eyes that you really want to do, but you shouldn't be doing, you're still not good at saying no to them. So you've got to kill those puppies. We we compromised on I would give the puppies away to other people. Um, <laughs> but actually, you know, that thing of it's the hardest thing because there are so many interesting people I could be talking to all the time and actually saying no to them really tough but actually the the kill puppies it sounds silly but it catches and it's quite good and the other one comes from an amazing woman um meg lightheart when i was ceo at grant thornton you know it's you know it's an endless challenge it's not something you crack and that's it i'm a zen master you know it's it's a continual challenge as you take on more roles of increased scale and complexity and she just gave me this wonderful gift which she said said thing is what most people do is they'll plan out their diary as if there aren't going to be any surprises in your week. But every week there are surprises that completely derail your diary. And so that brilliant thing of like, allow for surprises, choose which surprises you will allow to go into your surprise time, but plan for surprises. And that's just like genius, isn't it? It's like plan for surprises. Oh, who'd have thought? Because you don't know what they're going to be, but there definitely will be some every week. And, you know, and there's so many companies talking about moving towards agility. It's like, how can you be agile if you don't have any time? Yeah. what needs yeah. to be improved. <laughs> yeah. It's just brilliant, isn't it? It's like, so So now I block out, I, I have like four blocks I have with my time. I have my time to focus on, you know, my strategic priorities, which can be a combination of meetings and focus time. My time to focus on my team, thinking time and surprises time. And that, that, thinking about your diary like that, it really does create space. Absolutely love that. Love that. Here, listeners, these are pragmatic things that you can start putting into practice tomorrow or even today. <laughs> What's your story number two, Sasha? Um, so my, my story number two is it builds on this one, I think, which is there was sort of a whole period of my life where I'd been promoted, I'd been made partner, I was now running a department and um, we were doing a whole series of business planning and I had 600 people in the team and so, you know, a lot of people to um, lead and develop. So you feel you've got this responsibility as a leader to have the answers to that model of leadership of, you know, I'm going to come up and I'm going to give you this wonderful vision and you're going to follow me over the horizon kind of thing. And at the same time, I was, I was very blessed. I was, I was gifted a place on a leadership pre- program at Chicago Booth. And I was also doing a coaching program, which was initiated by a wonderful woman called Kathy Hart. I like to credit people. I think it's really important to credit people. And what was wonderful was doing these two programs at the same time as sort of working through this, there came this dawning realization of almost these two things, which was one was actually my job as a leader wasn't to have all the answers it was to ask great questions because actually through asking great questions I could tap into the insights of 600 people rather than me to try and do the thinking of 600 people and it was like duh um (laughs) this this makes more sense the second bit with that was um this insight from these wonderful clinical social psychologists, Susan Anuncio and Linda Ginzel, and they ran the program at Chicago. And them giving me this fantastic insight that actually people's ability to do great work depended on the environment you created for them, not their intrinsic ability. And of course, they backed it up with so much science and data and stuff. And again, that became like, oh, yeah. 
And so this combination of what is it that you can do to really create the conditions for people to do great work became this really important part of work. And then sort of thinking about, well, you know, that's all about really about how you're setting people up to use all of their brains, not just part of their brains. And so some of that being, you know, how safe do people feel? Some of that being about how do you create space for people to play and access their right veins? How do you get them to lose the inhibitions of at work, I'm this serious person and I have to think in this logical, rational way to actually give them reign, to actually bring all of their insights and creativity. And so really experiment with that over the years has just been a been a transformation. And it's just wonderful because you find that people have been trained to believe they haven't got the capacity to do things, that they need someone else to tell them the answers that there is a certain way you have to be to be successful. And when you start stripping all of that back and you start seeing people generating ideas and things they never believed they could, that's just magic. You have to be brave and hold that space. I mean, I I think I was talking to you, you know, when we were doing um, sessions with business leaders and we'd have 400 people in the room and we'd be getting people to start with, you know, dream, dream what this city would be like if it was wonderful. And we had people expressing their dreams with pipe cleaners and paints and, you know, all of these different things. And I remember some of my, somebody who's like, you're not going to get my clients doing that. You know, that is so embarrassing. But of course, there were these wonderful things of people suddenly rapping and all of these things in terms of expressing their ideas. Because actually, what it let people do was shed their agenda, their professional persona, and step into this wonderful human being that could dream and imagine and be excited about possibilities. And um, that was something that I just love to see. And I think being prepared to play, to be creative, to hold the space when people think you're an idiot, um, you know, (laughs) do it. Apart from anything else, it's fun. It is fun. And, you know, fun and good work go hand in hand. Yeah. But it's so often, you know, when I'm working, when I'm working with people, And they say, oh, God, we can't do that because our company is really rational. Our company is really data driven. Our people are different. And you're like, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just run with it and then see how those people react? And lo and behold, these very rational people who are very data driven and definitely won't enjoy this, love it because they can be the person they are at home. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think I'm I'm reading a brilliant book at the moment by Anissa Ramirez called The Alchemy of Us, which is looking at how scientific discoveries have happened sort of over the years. Highly recommend that. But one of the ones that really sort of strikes me that's a really recent one is um, the discovery of graphene, which, as you know, magical sort of superconducting, incredible material that's actually starting to sort of transform, you know, the future of all sorts of things. and that was theoretically possible from the 1880s, but nobody had been able to, you know, develop a way to isolate it in a practical way. How did that actually happen? Well, Andre Guin, who won the Nobel Prize for it, he is at the, was at the University of Manchester, and um, he had play afternoons on Friday afternoons with his team, right? And someone was mucking about with some um, scotch tape and 
some graphite and found that those two things together that they could actually isolate graphene it came from them playing and what i love is i think his team is the only team that's actually won a nobel prize and an ig nobel prize because their ig nobel prize was when they were playing and they managed to levitate a frog so (laughs) oh my god that's brilliant it's it's fascinating because people always think that the best ideas come from this sort of rational thought process. No, you've got the left and the right coming together is what actually unleashes that sort of potential of innovation and creativity. So absolutely. Yeah. And and one of my guests, a previous guest was Amy Edmondson. Uh-huh. talks a lot about psychological safety. And one of the things yes. she's about is asking the right questions yeah. and allowing people to speak up and making sure that people feel safe enough to just be who they are and who we are is the child inside. That thing in terms of making people feel safe, I think there's a really good point about that. I remember Susan Bright, who um, was, I think she might still be CEO at um, Hogan Lovell. So I remember talking to her about some of this stuff around, you know, getting people to step forward and create and stuff like that and talking about how people were tentative and, and, and also how sometimes partners were a little bit dismissive when people came up with small ideas to questions that we were asking. And, um, and Susan's saying, thing is that that is them testing you because if you're uh, responsive with their small ideas, then they'll know it's safe to trust you with their big ideas. But if you trash their small idea, they ain't ever coming back. And that was just such amazing advice. Um, that. that actually they're these little green shoots and nurture them because from there grow people's confidence to actually really be who they can be. It's like with kids, isn't it? It's like when kids are learning to walk, you don't sort of go, you know, they fall over the first time. You don't go, oh, you're crap. I'll get you to <laughs> <laughs> Exactly that. And, you know, I mean, Beep is very much about allowing people or, or incentivizing people or empowering people to talk about those little tiny things which feel really unimportant because what they want to talk about is the big stuff the structural stuff the operational stuff but actually by changing lots and lots and lots of little things you end up yeah. changing the big thing and people yeah. feel keep feeling like oh that means i can actually i can be part of a change i yeah. saw progress sometimes the the solutions are simpler than we think because people will notice the little things that actually can make a big difference. So, so I think true. that's always just fascinating. So true. Oh my God, I love that. Okay, story number three. So story number three, I've told this one before, but I think it's an extension. It's a continued build in terms of what I've been talking about. So when I was promoted to the board at Grant Thornton, which was back in two thousand and seven 2008 might ring a bell financial crisis so i michael cleary was very kind and gave me the opportunity to take up a newly created role which was head of people and culture so i was really excited you know given everything we talked about you can get like this is fantastic i've now got my dream job to help everybody grow and thrive and then boom comes financial crisis you know, suddenly we're in a sort of position where transactional activities pretty much stopped overnight. And we frankly just don't have enough work for all the people that we've got. And on a purely rational basis, you're like, well, we've got 400 too many people. So we had a choice in terms of what we did. And we just got a, an employment forum 
which was sort of employee representatives, and we would usually be having a meeting with meeting with them coming up. And so there's this choice point of right, well, do you do it in the traditional way where you know management go into a room and go right, four hundred people have got to go read from the script. Here's the process, boom. Or could there be a different way? And I'm forever grateful to my CEO at the time, Scott Barnes, well, Michael, Michael and Scott, actually, as we went into this, and my colleagues at the time, because we, we decided, actually, we were going to ask people, we we're going to lay out, here is the situation, how can we deal with this? And we took that to our employee representatives, and they were incredible. They understood it. There was all the emotions in terms of people feeling, you know, angry, worried, scared, all of that sort of stuff, which is completely normal. But then actually this incredible ownership and responsibility to say, okay, well, how should we handle this? And you had groups of managers coming together saying, well, there's five managers in this office. We only need four now. So what if all of us do a four day week? There was unpaid, came up with the idea of unpaid sabbaticals where people could actually take a break. There were paid, you know, there were all sorts of different strategies that we were able to develop with our people. And, you know, it still meant that we had to, you know, there were some roles that we couldn't keep, but we probably had about 100 sort of redundancies versus the 400 that probably if we'd have just done the vanilla plan, which is quite a big difference. And, you know, I know we won't have got everything perfect. I'm sure if there's someone listening to this going, you know, you think that was how it worked. <laughs> you know, but I think that we had a significantly better outcome because we involved our people and treated them like adults than if we'd have tried to do it in a traditional way. And, you know, again, I think that's a that's a really good learning that actually people, if they're given the opportunity to shape their future, then they will often be bigger, bolder, more innovative than if you've got small people just sitting in a room thinking. And, and it's something, and, and this is a story, Sasha, when you first told me that story, it stayed with me and I tell it to people all of the time that you don't have to do things in a normal way. Just because it's normal yeah. does not make it right. And, you know, if you look at the neuroscience of this, if you do change, if change comes at people from out of the blue, they're immediately going to fight or flight. So you're the enemy. Whereas yeah. if you go, we've got a problem, guys. Ownership, mm. co-creation, autonomy, all of those things. Why wouldn't that work better? Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's so fun. I find it hilarious because that whole sort of thing of like, you know, people are always saying to me, oh, people don't like change. People love change. It's like, you know, if someone's, at, if someone's planning to buy a new car or planning a holiday, you know, the whole sort of looking and thinking about it and stuff, that's all part of the enjoyment, right? So, you know, but it's because they're driving that change. Yes. And so, you know, and it's why that power of great questions of like, how could we? And, and particularly making them open questions, you know, how could we? You know, And I, I use the whole time in terms of... um in terms of when we're doing strategy using the how, 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 why, 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 which Hamish Scott first introduced me to. Um, but actually getting people to, you know, to say, you know, starting with your sort of purpose and mission, sort of saying, you know, well, you see, no, in terms of my current, my current role, you know, we're focused on, you know, how do we increase the financial resilience of people in vulnerable circumstances through increasing the access to fair and affordable financial products and services. How do you do that? Oh, well, affordable credit's a real issue. 
Okay, so how could we do that? You know, and those questions and engaging people with it, it creates that expansiveness of ideas that you bring in the richness of people's perspectives. And similarly, you know, and I find this particularly in terms of if you're working with senior people and they say, oh, I think we should do this. Um, so why? And then it's like, well, because I think that way, why? So that you can actually really come back to, is this actually going to take us to our purpose or is it your new pet idea? So yeah. that how, how, why, why, why is a really simple strategy and to, you know, to really get people's creative juices thinking. It's a really simple strategy, but it's a strategy that not nowhere near enough people employ. And I find myself all the time having conversations with the people that we're working with. And they'll say, we need to do this. And I'll go, why are we going to do that? Yada, yada, yada. No, no, no. That's the what and the how. Why? Where are we trying to get to? No, no, no. You've just repeated. You've just told me again what you're going to do. But can you step back and actually go, what's the vision here? Yeah. Here we are, you know, 22. You'd have thought it's just common sense, isn't it, really? And so, Sasha, you know, so when I first met you, you were the CEO, Grant Thornton, and now you've made a massive shift. And I know that you, like me, think that business is a platform for positive change, and that's why you're doing the job. But if you could just tell the listeners, you've made an enormous and amazing change to do something very different. It's really exciting because I think that the... My my work sort of at Grant Thornton had really given me the opportunity to explore, really sort of thinking about how things work and where things, where markets and sort of almost like just how things work were broken and were not serving particular groups of groups of people. And um, particularly, you know, it's 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 got considerably worse through the COVID pandemic. But you know, there are about twenty eight million people what we call in financially vulnerable circumstances. How many? 28 million. Um, so this is basically, you know, people's ability to withstand um, life shocks. And, um, you know, 14 million people have less than £100 in savings. So their washing machine breaking down is actually a life event. And, you know, we, we look at the indications of, sort of vulnerability as sort of being these four different areas. One is your financial capability. 20 million people have got the numeracy skills of a 12-year-old child. So, you know, That's there is insane. so much stuff that is written in a way in percentages and technical language that people haven't got hope of understanding. So, you know, and a lot of the stuff is like, well, if we just educate them all a bit better, it'll all be fine. No, let's express stuff in ways that pe- is understandable. You know, if you're not, you know, that numerate, the financial resilience in terms of £100 in savings, I've said, and then you've got people subject to um, life shocks, right? You know, a bereavement, a divorce, domestic abuse, separation, all of those things are things that can actually tip people from being fine into, oh my goodness. And I think that probably through the pandemic, um, from a societal perspective, I suppose one of the things is people have appreciated how fine that line actually can be, right? And then the final one is around sort of people's physical and mental health, that that can be challenging. You know, if you're undergoing chemotherapy, oftentimes that will leave you really chilly. And so you need the heating up higher. And so suddenly your bills are a lot more expensive, which is, you know, a very current one right now. And and I think that there's probably been 
a lot over the years, which is, you know, well, the market, competition, that will actually ensure people are served properly until it doesn't. And what you find is that in terms of financial products and services, they're designed for people in, in predictable lives, predictable incomes. And actually, over the last, you know, really sort of 13, 14 years since the financial crisis, actually serving people who have unpredictable lives, unpredictable incomes, they're just not served. And you've seen things like the rise of the high cost credit and then the fall of the high cost credit. Now with buy now, pay later. You've seen a lot of probably what I call slightly systematic exploitation of people's vulnerabilities. And, you know, so we've been set up to say, well, actually, that can't be right. That can't be right. Um, let's look at how we can find what is working to give great outcomes for people. Let's look at how we can support that to scale and grow and build evidence for business cases and stuff to do things differently. And frankly, how can we make that the new normal that this is the position permission to play? That, you know, if you look back in the 1970s, you or I couldn't have a bank account um, because we were women. We were a bit sort of, you know, flaky. We might do something a bit weird. That would be unacceptable today, right, for a financial institution to say, oh, we don't serve women. You know, it's the men that can have a bank account. And yet today we've kind of got a situation where, you know, if you are a person in vulnerable circumstances, a lot of mainstream organisations don't serve you and that doesn't feel right so yeah i get a bit excited about it but that's what we've been set up to do and it's an absolute privilege to work with my team and to try and you know there's been so much great thinking by so many brilliant organizations of what needs to happen to change it but there hasn't necessarily been people who've got the resources to actually try and actually do it so to be given that opportunity is a massive privilege it's terrifying at times um and you know the problem getting ever bigger it's sort of like, <laughs> some days you wake up and you think blimey how are we going to do this but such a privilege to try and make a difference to people who really deserve the system to serve them better and yeah i mean i i could continue talking to you about this because some of the stories you told me about about that being on that line between fine and not fine I realised, as the last time we talked to each other, that I live in a bubble. We, yeah. dear listener, live in a bubble. It's like that 100 quid can make a massive difference to somebody. And if you literally can't borrow it, can't access it, can't, nobody will trust you because, hey, you're poor, there must be something wrong with you. Yeah. What a ridiculous situation. So, I, you know, and if anyone can make that work, <laughs> I believe it will be you. <laughs> I'm so delighted. So the last thing we have to do before we um, sign off for the day is you have to tell me what you would like to call your episode of Humans Leading Humans. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what would I like to call that? What would I like to call the episode? Um... Kill the puppies? Um, <laughs> kill the puppies. I think I probably do. I is you're not alone you're not alone i love that yeah. sasha yeah you're not I alone absolutely love that thank <laughs> you so much for your time and your warmth and sharing your stories it's been an absolute pleasure sasha thank you
Thank you. And thank you for taking the space to get me out of my <laughs> mode. And <laughs> More than thank you. Oh my goodness, Sasha, I knew that this would be a fantastic conversation, but my goodness me, that resonated with me on so many levels. And also, it was just so packed with real pragmatic tips. I love that. Thank you so much. What did I take away from that? I guess one of the things that really resonates with me, and especially now, because I am not giving myself enough space. In truth, I have a habit of saying yes to everything that I find interesting. So I absolutely love your idea, Sasha, there of killing puppies. It doesn't sound great, I know, but it makes so much sense. Sometimes you have to say no. You've got to control your time. You've got to change your own narrative. Because you know what? Without energy, you can't be any use to anybody. And the other thing that I really loved is be prepared for the unprepared. Put that amount of time in your diary every day to make sure that when things do happen that you're not expecting, you've actually got some wiggle room in there. And I suppose in a way, my way of doing that is I walk, I do 12,000 steps every day. I'm like a crazy walker. And that for me is my, my wiggle room and my time to think and uh, zoom out of where I am. And just make sure you've got that time, guys, because if you're like me, it's not easy to say no and to make time. And I loved what she said. It really, again, uh, resonated really strongly with me, but also echoed what Amy Edmondson said in her episode uh, a few weeks ago. Ask people questions, because the more people you've got in your team, the more energy, the more experience you've got access. So don't squander it. Ask those questions. Just remember, and this is what this podcast is all about, that your only job as a leader is to create culture where humans thrive. What else? What else? What else? I 100% agree with Sasha that everyone is capable of being creative if you create the right conditions. And I've seen people blossom so often who start saying, I'm definitely not a creative. I don't know why you've invited me to this. And then lo and behold, there they are being creative. And I love to watch their potential being unleashed in that way. And play, play is not diametrically opposed to work. Be playful, find opportunities where people can really express their desires, give them space to dream and give them props. And actually Harley from Burning Man in her episode talked exactly about this. Play is not diametrically opposed to work. So set up situations where people can be playful because that's how humans learn. And then of course, there's that downsizing story which Sasha told me a few years ago, and I have told various leaders as I've been in meetings with them. Even the most difficult situations can be navigated better by crowdsourcing wisdom, by unleashing the common sense. Just imagine how much, how much better would those people in that room have felt being asked to come up with a solution at that incredibly tough time and purely practically, imagine how much cash was saved. 
by avoiding 300 redundancies. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards the future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. And if you're not a member already, I'd suggest you pop over to their website and join up. It's worth it. A massive, massive thanks to the fantastic Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to We Are Beep to find out more about the Create framework and how we support companies by unlocking the problem-solving potential of humans. If you loved this week's episode, pass it on to your friends. Pass it on to your colleagues you think might need a shot of inspiration and courage. Better still, if you've got a boss who doesn't understand how to create environments in which humans thrive, please pass this on to them. Thank you so much for joining me. Please subscribe. The links are in the notes. Be inspired. Be imaginal. Be more human. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Mm -hmm.